Um, so lately I've been hearing that people are done with the pandemic. Um, it's been a lot, hasn't it? Masks, vaccinations, vaccination mandates, boosters, um, gosh, places of interest, rising cases, the shelves being empty at the supermarket. You know, our kids are back at school wearing masks, uh, siblings not able to interact with one another at lunchtime, um, not able to drag mum and dad in to have a look at their artwork after school. And workplaces, of course, are trying to find this balance between being on site uh, or working remotely. That's a lot. Um, heard from so many returning to work that they just don't know if they've got the energy to keep going at their current pace. Uh, Self-employed people, the fear around uh, whether or not their business can weather the storms of multiple bouts of isolation for them or for their staff. Um, you've got families that are separated um, by restrictions. And you know, I went to a restaurant last week for my birthday and I was so astounded by how empty it was. A restaurant that in the past I would describe as thriving, as heaving with people, uh, was really empty as we sat in our own section with nobody else around us. Several months ago, an organisational psychologist I follow, Adam Grant, released an article in the New York Times um, describing kind of this corporate feeling of blah that we are all experiencing. And you know, he describes it, he says it's not burnout, because um, we do still have some energy. Um, and it's not depression, because we don't feel hopeless. There is just the sense of joylessness and aimlessness. And the name of this emotion is languishing. It's that sense of stagnation, like driving with your windscreen fogged up. Um, and he says that this feeling of languishing, that it is kind of like the middle child, uh, neglected middle child of mental health. At one end, you have the peak of flourishing, of well-being. The other end, the other extreme, you have the valley of depression. Um, and then in the middle, in this void, there is a space where there is kind of an absence of well-being, uh, and he calls it languishing. Throughout much of history, there has not been the luxury of certainty. Nature was not something that we had conquered. You know, I've started reading for fun again recently. It's been a few years since I've just read for pleasure. Um, and I'd been reading this really fascinating and compelling book around the Donner Party, uh, a group of people that travelled across the US from Illinois to California back in 1886. Um, and it's an incredible story of just how much humans can withstand and what they can survive, but also an awful story of um, tragedy. Uh, if you are, were a millennial kid, you might remember playing Oregon Trail on the old Mac computers at school. Um, and it would tell you, you know, the Indians have stolen your oxen, or you've got dysentery, or um, just awful, you know, you can never win this. I never won this game. Um, and this is what it was like for them. Um, and you know, as I read this book, I just couldn't get over how brutal life was. Um, and I just want to read you a quote that really struck me in the book. It said, children fell under wagon wheels and were crushed to death or crippled for life. They wandered off into the tall grass and were never seen again. Occasionally they were abducted by Native Americans. Much more frequently, they drowned when swept away by rivers their families were trying to ford. Drowning incidences were so common, in fact, that some mothers wrote their names uh, in indelible ink on labels and sewed the labels into their children's clothes. It didn't prevent them from drowning. 
but sometimes it allowed a grieving mother to identify a body that had been in the water too long. Children were bitten by rattlesnakes, struck by lightning, trampled by unruly oxen or horses, pummeled by hailstones as large as turkey eggs, and shot by the nearly daily accidental discharges of the guns their fathers carried. They died of measles, diphtheria, whooping cough, influenza, tuberculosis, typhoid fever, malaria, infected cuts, food poisoning, mumps, and smallpox. Perhaps the only break the mothers on the Platte River Road had that summer was that it wasn't yet 1849, when the Asiatic cholera would kill thousands along the same stretch of trail, the graves in some places averaging one every 200 feet. It was a brutal, brutal world. And just this week, Nathan and I, my oldest Nathan, we um, visited the Gallipoli exhibit at Te Papa again. Um, and I was just so struck by how fragile and dispensable life was at that time. And one of the quotes I read, and I realise that this is morbid, um, but this was real experience life. So this quote is from Lieutenant Colonel Percival Fendwick. He said, the Turkish dead lay so thick that it was almost impossible to pass without treading on bodies. Swollen, black, hideous, and overall a nauseating stench that nearly made one vomit. I pray God I may never see such an awful sight again. You know, over 18,000 New Zealanders died in that war. Um, following that, the Spanish flu killed another 8,500 New Zealanders, uh, and then World War II, uh, 12,000 New Zealanders were killed. Uh, and you think about those huge numbers, we were such a tiny nation of around 2 million at the time. Um, that affected across all spheres, spheres of life. You know, life is fragile, and stability has been uncertain for so much of human history. You know, our modern world has lulled us into this false sense of security that we've conquered nature, and that maybe we've even conquered human nature. But we're discovering that that's not the case. Uh, Mark says um, he's an Australian pastor and a cultural commentator. He said in his book, Strange Days, he said, disorder will continue, not because we're entering a particularly disordered time, but because human history inevitably will be disordered until Christ ends the age. We struggle with this because we bought the myth that history has ended and that we can enjoy a kind of heaven on earth existence without God. We want the kingdom, but not the king. We want our utopia without Jesus. You know, when Jesus arrived, uh, the, the Israelite nation were a nation that were living under empire. They knew what it was to live under the rule and reign of someone other than God. They had, you know, this massive exodus out of Egypt that's part of their story. It's part of our story as a Christian community. Um, and then they were exiled by the Assyrians who were just an incredibly brutal culture. Um, impalement and crucifixion were inventions of this group. Uh, and then the Israelites were further um, exiled by the Babylonians. They were dragged off and taken elsewhere. Uh, they were then um, lived under the Persians and then the Greeks and then the Romans. They knew what it was to live an empire. And, and it was to these people, the small Israelite nation, that Jesus came and he said these words, Are you tired? Are you worn out? Are you burnt out on religion? Come to me. Get away with me and you'll recover your life. 
I'll show you how to take a real rest. Walk with me and work with me. Watch how I do it. Learn the unforced rhythms of grace. I won't lay anything heavy or ill-fitting on you. Keep company with me and you'll learn to live freely and lightly. Learning to live freely and lightly. And everything right now, it can feel a bit out of control and um, the daily decisions we're having to make as we navigate life with new restrictions can feel really heavy. You know, but living freely and lightly has nothing to do with our physical and material well-being. There's a question that I've encouraged our leaders to start asking one another, and it's how is your soul? You know, I don't think Jesus proposes freedom from suffering, but he proposes freedom from our old selves. You know, in our understanding of the yoke, we think about uh, two oxen pulling a weight together and maybe a younger oxen um, aligning with an older oxen to learn how to pull that weight. And that's a helpful image. We yoke ourselves to Jesus so that he will teach us and he will show us the way. Uh, But also in the traditional time, uh, rabbis, their rules and their lists, they would be called a yoke. And so their disciples, their students, they would take upon this yoke, they would memorise it, they would learn it. And the Pharisees, in Matthew 23, it says, they crush people with unbearable religious demands and never lift a finger to ease the burden. That was a heavy yoke. And you might feel that sometimes when you're trying to pray and you're trying to do Bible study and you feel like it's obligation, it's obligation, it's obligation. That's not what Jesus is calling for you. He says that his yoke is easy and his burden is light. And the word easy, uh, that means uh, it is good and it is simple. There is nothing complicated about it. We can leave the ways of heavy labour and we can enter the rest of Jesus. And who is this Jesus that we are yoking ourselves to? It says in Philippians 2, says, though he was God, he did not think of equality with God as something to cling to. Instead, he gave up his divine privileges. He took a humble position of slave and was born a human being. When he appeared in human form, he humbled himself in obedience to God and he died a criminal's death on the cross. Jesus emptied himself. He took on the position of a servant. He had no agendas that weren't his father's agendas. In her book called Spiritual Disciplines, Adele Cahoon, she says, Willpower and discipline alone can never fix your soul. Striving, pushing, and trying harder will not recover your life. Unforced rhythms of grace depend on something more than self-mastery and self-effort. The simple truth is that wanting to keep company with Jesus has a staying power that the shoulds and oughts don't have. So how do we lay hold of this rest that brings freedom and that brings life? We abide. And that's language that we're starting to use around here at Awaken. We abide. Jesus tells us in his farewell discourse in John 15, he says, I am the real vine and my father is the farmer. He cuts off every branch of me that doesn't bear grapes. And every branch that is grape bearing, he prunes back so it'll bear even more. You're already pruned back by the message I have spoken. Live in me. Make your home in me just as I do in you. And in the same way that a branch can't bear grapes by itself, 
but only by being joined to the vine. You can't be a fruit unless you are joined with me. I am the vine, you are the branches. When you're joined with me and I with you, the relation intimate and organic, the harvest is sure to be abundant. Separated, you can't produce a thing. Anyone who separates from me is deadwood, gathered up and thrown on the bonfire. But if you make yourselves at home with me and my words are at home with you, you can be sure that whatever you will ask will be listened to and acted upon. This is how my father shows who he is when you produce grapes and when you mature as my disciples. So we abide. Sounds simple, right? We know that God wants to transform us. We just don't know how. And it's risky to come into that place of abiding, to submit, to pruning, because we don't know which bits God wants to prune off us. It might be a branch or a bud that we've come accustomed to or we might actually not want to get rid of. But as long as it is attached to us and as long as that thing is living, it is robbing us of our flourishing. And, you know, do, we, do we have time? You know, I'm an employee, I'm a volunteer, um, I'm a mum, I'm a wife, I'm a sister, I'm a daughter, I'm a friend. Like, how do we find time? And maybe we lead, need to let go of some certainty and some control. You know, the best wine is not actually uh, created in um, lush fields with plenty of irrigation. Uh, the best wine uh, comes from grapes that are on vines that are in dry ground, where the vines have to dig their roots in really deep to get to the water. And when they have to dig, when there is this hardship that happens, moving their roots through the hard soil, um, you find that um, the grapes will be smaller, um, but they'll have more flavour and there'll be a richness to them that you wouldn't get uh, if grapes were, uh, yeah, had all the water that they may have desired. And it's kind of the same in our lives, the certainty of provision, the certainty of success, the certainty of health. Um, none of these things ensure our flourishing. We flourish when we abide, when we're connected to the vine. You know, and the early Christians have, have wrestled with this for the past couple of thousand years. Um, in the early days, the Christian church was persecuted. Um, you had the Roman religion, you had the Jewish religion, and then Christianity was this third way. Um, but around, in the, around 312 uh, AD, I believe it was, uh, Constantine made Christianity, the, it was the empire's religion, uh, and things shifted. Suddenly, Christianity was in bed with um, politics. Uh, and there were Christians who we call now the early desert fathers and mothers who uh, did not like this nominal Christianity that had appeared. And so they left the city and they'd go to the desert. And they started to intentionally um, practice this way of life with Jesus, where they engaged with silence and solitude and contemplative prayer. And in this rise of spiritual disciplines, uh, there was this profound effect where people would leave the city to come and form these monastic communities. And then in the 16th century, uh, you know, there was this coincidence, I guess, of time. There was the printing press. Ships now were able to sail around the sea. Uh, and then there was also the Reformation. And it sort of, you know, fanned these flames um, again that may have grown a little dormant over the years. Um, suddenly the Bible was accessible to ordinary people. Um, missions could reach the ends of the earth. So Bible study, stewardship and intercessory prayer became accessible not just to the educated elite, but to the common man. 
you know, some of these classical disciplines have come full circle. Um, as we are now in a distracted and technological age, people are desiring that sense of solitude, the, the rest, the peace that comes with that. Um, we're desperately seeking a still, quiet centre in the middle of the whirlwind. Paul, who in the New Testament wrote a whole stack of our letters we have, he was so passionate about God and passionate about people. And he said in 2 Corinthians, So we're not giving up. How could we? Even though on the outside it often looks like things are falling apart, on the inside, where God is making new life, not a day goes by without his unfolding grace. These hard times are small potatoes compared to the coming good times, the lavish celebration prepared for us. There's more here than meets the eye. The things we see now are here today and gone tomorrow. But the things we can't see now will last forever. Uh, and I think what hope that would have brought to his listeners who, where life was fragile, where there was no certainty, uh, for them to hear um, that there is just such hope. This is small potatoes. We're going to be feasting with Jesus one day in the future. So, you know, why do we want to draw close to Jesus? Why abide with him? It's not so that we'll have prosperity. It's not so that we'd have certainty. Um, and it's not so that he would have to be forced to be some sort of cosmic genie. You know, I've shown up for my prayer time. Now I want the goods, God. You know, what we learn most, um, yeah, so Dallas Willard, who um, he knew what it was to abide, and there's just such a richness in his writing. He says, what we learn most in Jesus' yoke, beyond acting with him, is to abandon outcomes to God, accepting that we do not have in ourselves, in our own hearts, souls, mind and strength, the wherewithal to make this outcome right, whatever this is. You know, we're not in control of the outcome. And it's not even so that, you know, that abiding with him is not even just so that we would display the fruits of the Spirit. The, the real outcome, the blessing of abiding with Jesus is union with him. You know, we'll get this wrong more than we get right. That's why we're called students, disciples, apprentices. You know, we're learning from our teacher. We're learning from Jesus. Uh, for me personally, Sabbath is something I'm trying to work on. Get it wrong more than I get it right. But uh, there's something really powerful uh, in stopping. The work may not be finished uh, but we stop and we rest in God and we enjoy our families and our friends and we eat and we celebrate. Um, the work is still there. And uh, these priorities, these getting our lives back into uh, an alignment and in that we're abiding and we have union. So this term, as small groups are exploring prayer. How do we pray like Jesus prayed? How do we reflect and examine our day as St. Ignatius did? You know, how do we intercede for others? How do we listen to God? You know, how do we lament? Uh, in this modern society, um, there is this toxic positivity and this denial of pain that we see again and again. You know, how do we get a better theology of suffering? Um, and so over the course of this year, our small groups are going to explore with uh, different spiritual disciplines and different ways to abide with Jesus different rhythms, these unforced rhythms of grace that Jesus presented and the Christians have done for the last 2,000 years. So I encourage you to participate together with other Christians and respond to the invitation that Jesus has given to you to come. 
to take up his yoke, to rest in him, and, and to ultimately, we, we flourish. Um, and so if you are serious about moving from a place of languishing to a place of freedom and rest, I encourage you to jump on our website, awakencity.nz, um, and check out our groups. Um, there are groups across the Hutt Valley, and we now also have a group for young adults, which is really exciting. Um, and so get involved. Let's do this journey together, not alone. So we'll just finish in prayer. Father God, I thank you that uh, you do wish for us to flourish. And I know that in my life, just that constant invitation to come, to abide, and I just pray that uh, over this next bit, that that invitation would be so much louder for each of us, um, that we would hear you, Jesus, when you say, come, rest, that there is another option to languishing, that you do not need to keep wading through the mud and trying to look through this foggy windscreen, that there is another way, that there is a peace that passes all understanding, that there is a joy, that there is love, that there is hope, that there are all these things that are in you, Jesus. Um, and I just pray for our small groups this year, Father. I just pray that they would just um, discover you in new and fresh ways, that you know, if we think about all of this as a banquet that so often we sit with our chicken nuggets, but actually you have a full feast for us. And I pray that this year, that um, those of us who call Awaken Home, that we would feast on things that maybe we have not tasted before, but that you have prepared for us. Um, just pray a blessing on all of our groups, wherever people are gathering today, um, whether we're alone or with family or with friends, we just pray just a blessing upon them. Amen.